It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This is Earning Their Stripes, our Fish Stripes podcast show dedicated to Miami Marlins minor leaguers. I am Eli Sussman, the managing editor of Fish Stripes, where we cover the Marlins every single day in our own way. We hope you subscribe to this podcast for whatever platform you receive your pods on and that you check out our full coverage on fishstripes.com. You may be wondering, what possible storylines on the minor league side do we have to address at this time it's nearly two full months removed from the end of the 2021 milb regular season it's close to five months until the start presumably of the next minor league season it seems to be on the surface a dead area well the release of the show is being synced up with the announcement from the marlins high a beloit affiliate about their rebrand after more than a quarter century as the Beloit Snappers, their new name, the Beloit Skycarp. The team was accommodating enough to set up a one-on-one interview between myself and Quint Studer. He owns the Skycarp, as well as the AA Pensacola Blue Wahoos, coming off his first year in partnership with the Marlins as affiliates of that parent club. He's a fascinating guy, as you'll hear very shortly, and we had a lot to cover about minor league baseball itself, the business of baseball. So I hope you enjoy that and stick around for that coming up. Leading into it, I think we can agree that J.J. Bladé has earned the spotlight for himself. We have talked about Bladé on a weekly basis on Fish Stripes Live, our Wednesday live streams on YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch. They've been Arizona Fall League updates on every show, I believe, since the Fall League got underway. Blade has been a steady producer in that league, but he's only getting better as the league is getting closer to its conclusion. We're just one week away, finally, until the end of the fall league, and I don't think Blade is in any hurry to get out of the desert. 
it's been such a long year for him. It's probably the longest year for any player in professional baseball, I would say. He was part of Marlins Major League Spring Training, which means that he'd been doing workouts with the team since February. We're nine months later, and he's still playing on a near-daily basis out in Arizona. On Saturday, he put the cherry on top of his Fall League performance already in the regular season. Their quote-unquote regular season in the Fall League through 21 games. He was slashing 329, 447, 600, nearly as many walks as strikeouts, right near the league leaders in runs batted in. He'd been terrific, well-deserved selection to the Fall Stars game, which is pretty self-explanatory, recognizing the best producers and general prospects in the Fall League. The cherry on top was starting in the cleanup spot for the AFL East team, hitting a two-run homer in his first plate appearance. Lost his way this year, and he was able to come out here and I think feels much more like himself. He smacks that pitch to deep center, riding back, and gone! J.J. Bladé muscles up for two and ties the game. Just getting robbed barely of a hit his second time up, and then an RBI single his third time up to lead the AFL East to a victory, 6-5, to five, with half of those runs driven in by J.J. Bladé. Well-deserved MVP honors for the Marlins' former first-round draft pick. Also, Cameron Meisner was a late addition to that team's roster, and he got in for a couple innings off the bench. Bladé only played the first what, five, five and a half innings before being subbed out himself. It certainly made an impression while he was there. Very long year and more bad than good for him in 2021. Relatively aggressive assignment to put him up to double A from the very start of the regular season. He struggled as one of the presumed to be most polished hitters of his draft class and in the entire Marlins organization. He wasn't hitting for most of this year. Spent a lot of it below the Mendoza line. Not a ton of game power to speak of. What you could always see almost consistently throughout the entire thing is just his innate understanding of the strike zone and being able to recognize pitch types as well. That These are things that are very, very difficult to teach, and he has them ingrained within him. So those peripheral stats, even during the regular season, were pretty good and he's taking them even to a higher level here in the Fall League. You can't just take the Fall League stats uh, on their own in in a vacuum. It's an extremely hitter-friendly league, both due to the atmospheric conditions and also just the quality of the pitching. It's not very good. That's why this Fall Stars game performance, just this playing barely half of the game, uh, why even that's like ridiculously small sample is encouraging because he faced three different pitchers in his three blade appearances and all of them were again being put hand selected to this game based on their prospect pedigree and their fall league performance so even against some of the better pitchers that the fall league has to offer he was still doing that he's not necessarily the top prospect even on his own team with the mesa solar socks but even so, like what he's done is really reassure us of how high his floor is as a player because of his understanding of the strike zone and his consistent hard contact. Now, the limitation of his game 
is when you look at his peak exit velocities, we've been able to get a lot of that information from the fall league that we didn't have consistently during the regular season, that he's not a standout in that regard. It is worth wondering exactly what type of game power he will be able to bring to the highest level when the ball isn't traveling quite as well and whether he'll be able to get away with what I'll call non-barrels. There have been a couple instances in this fall league breakout performance where he's actually gone deep on balls that he didn't necessarily get everything of that just barely carried over just enough power. He's more of a just enough power than a no-doubter power. His home run in the Fall Stars game was estimated at 417 feet. I believe that was either his longest or probably maybe his second longest of the entire Fall League out of a total of six. He does not have that true plus power tool in him, but he is such a well-rounded hitter otherwise holding his own defensively. He's played, I believe, a little bit of all three outfield positions during the Fall League, including a couple starts in center field. There have been times during the regular season where colleagues of mine have, I would say, overreacted to his struggles, dropping him down their prospect list, kind of discounting him at somebody the Marlins should be planning on. Through it all, I've always maintained that he is a great prospect, not quite the surefire impact guy I was projecting coming out of the draft, but he'd been number six, I believe, on my list, six or seven throughout the late summer, and I have a full update of those prospect rankings coming out at the end of this month. The expectation is that he's probably going to stay exactly where he is, number six out of all Marlins prospects, where you can comfortably see him being an average major leaguer corner outfielder that he has, even with some questions about exactly where the power is going to go, barring any physical changes to him, that he does enough in terms of he'll be able to get on base consistently and he'll, he'll be able to find, get himself out of slumps relatively quickly. This was a big year for him in, in terms of trying to self-correct um, any inconsistencies that he was having. He made tweaks to his, his setup position in the box, his hand position with the bat. He's currently settled on a, a, a routine where he drapes it over his shoulder, which is a little bit unconventional, uh, messing around with his leg kick. At this moment, his leg kick is relatively mild, especially by today's standards, and also just how well he's rotating on his hips and how he's utilizing his legs. You can see that in some of these game performances. Now, there's no doubt, aside from just facing what may be easier competition than you saw during double A, that he is just in a great groove right now that a lot of hitters simply don't find at this kind of groove, where he is just seeing the pitches incredibly well and making a ton of hard contact, hard enough to you know find holes in the defense, and especially in the fall league, hard enough sometimes to get over the wall, even when he doesn't completely barrel it. Uh, it was just this morning that I was thinking it over, because I've had a lot of time, a lot of trouble finding uh, like an appropriate player comp for J.J. Bleday coming out of the draft, there were more than a few people that pointed to Michael Conforto. There were some similarities in their college performance, in um, just, I guess, some physical resemblance to them as well. I don't like making comps for guys that are still very much in the middle of their career. Like, like when you make a comp to Michael Conforto, I don't think that's a very coherent 
thing to do because Conforto is still in his 20s. Like, he's not even done yet. I like to look more to guys that or have made it all the way across the aging curve or ones that have recently retired. It was just this morning that I do think I found one that makes more sense as a ceiling for J.J. Bleday, and that would be the recently retired Nick Markakis for a bunch of years with the Orioles and then later with the Braves. So even that one is not perfect because he was a little unorthodox in his aging situation in that, for whatever reason, once he got into his 30s, he continued to be durable, he continued to perform well, but he lost, he completely lost his his power at that point, his over-the-fence power during his years with the Braves. So I think aside from that one kind of anomalous aging detail with him, that I could see that as a ceiling for J.J. Bleday, as a guy that flirts with hitting 300 during his peak seasons, that is a great situational hitter, that most likely is going to be um, relegated to an outfield corner, but potentially could play it very well, um, even without premium athleticism at that position. Uh, Mark Akis quietly accrued a, a ton of hits. I don't know if Blade will get quite as many, but I think he'll get on base, potentially, at an almost comparable level, well, well above league average. And that, you know, when all is said and done, Bleday could be a guy that hits more than 200 home runs in the big leagues. That is a part of a lot of winning teams and that perhaps sneaks into an all-star game. That he does have that all-star upside if uh, everything comes together. Not going to change the franchise on his own, but that's a pretty potential big piece of the organization. And I don't think they're willing to give up on that anytime soon. The expectation is he'll start next year in AAA, and then we'll take it from there. As soon as an opening arises on the Major League roster, they'll have an interesting decision to make with Blade because he is, um, I wouldn't say he's, he's a finished product, but we have a pretty clear idea of who he is a, as a player, and they made such a big investment in him. It's, it's only a matter of months, I think, until we reach a point that they want to find out exactly how that translates to the Majors. One other heads up for you guys is that this coming Friday should be the deadline for teams to set their restricted lists ahead of the possible Rule 5 draft. It's awkward because we might not have the Rule 5 draft at the usual time with the work stoppage looming over all of us, potential work stoppage kicking in on the night of December 1st. I think regardless, because it it's still a few weeks away, that this deadline will remain the same. The Marlins have to sort out their 40-man roster ahead of a potential Rule 5 draft, and it's a pretty boring time for the team, not because they don't have a lot of interesting prospects that are at that stage of their career, but they got a head start on this, if you remember. A couple of their key candidates in this regard um, late in the summer were Nick Fortes, who was having a great season at AA, Peyton Henry, who they just traded for from the Brewers, and somewhat surprisingly, they called up both of those guys towards the end of the season to the major leagues, which put them on the 40-man roster and already made this decision well in advance. So aside from them, the one, the one guy still on the outside looking in at the 40-man roster who we expect to get protection would be Griffin Conine, coming off a very fascinating three-true-outcomes-heavy year in the minor leagues, where he's far from a finished product, and I think there's 
perhaps a case to be made that he's not the type of player that would get selected in the Rule 5 draft anyway, even if he was left unprotected. But the team, I expect to err on the side of caution, especially considering how many current members of their 40-man roster are very expendable. It's not really much of an issue to make room for, for Conine and continue to try to iron out his his approach and his well-documented strikeout issues. Other than that, they have dozens of other players in the organization who are Rule 5 eligible. You could actually see all of them if you go to Roster Resource on Fangraphs. Their depth charts have a nice indicator of which players are Rule 5 eligible. It's dozens of players, but most of them are just relievers that uh, you don't expect to really be worth the trouble of protecting Tommy Eveld, Colton Hawk, Jake Fishman. Those are the biggest names. And if you go further down, there are others that, including some Fall League players, Jeffrey Yan and Justin Evans. Um, so not a total coincidence those guys went to the Fall League because they will be eligible for selection, assuming we do have a Rule 5 draft. Another player that had a standout year who is eligible, Bryson Brigman. We talked about Bryson Bergman all year. He is the type of player that I could see potentially going, but not no guarantee. He was eligible actually last year as well and didn't get selected, so you never know. You, again, you could see the full list on uh, Roster Resource, and I'll li- link to it in the article page of this podcast episode. That deadline coming up on Friday for roster protection, so we'll have that covered on Fish Drives as well. That's more than enough of my soliloquy. We'll turn it over to this interview between myself and Quint Studer, owner of the AA Pensacola Blue Wahoos and the newly rebranded High A Beloit Skycarp. Enjoy. Earning Their Stripes is back with a fascinating guest. For decades, he's been an innovator in the healthcare industry. He's the founder of the Studer Group, a devoted philanthropist and accomplished author. He's a talented podcaster as well, so he's not intimidated one bit from coming on here with me and having this conversation. And in his spare time, Quint Studer owns two of the Marlins minor league affiliates, the AA Pensacola Blue Wahoos and the newly rebranded High A Beloit Skycarp. By the time you're listening to this, it will be official, it'll be public. Quint, it's a privilege for me to have somebody with your unique perspective come on the show. I greatly appreciate the time. No, I appreciate the time. And I appreciate, you know, you guys are great for the Marlins and great for helping the brand. So I appreciate everything you do. We are speaking a few days in, in advance of the big reveal, which will be on November 15th. So what is the prevailing emotion that you're feeling in regards to the sky carp a few days away? Have you reached this inner peace with the way that the job has been done and the, the answer that you've arrived on, or is there still some anxiety that's lingering until the fans see it and react for themselves? No, I'm really excited about it. I, I think it fits what we wanted to do. And um, I think the message is there. Everything we've learned from the first moment that I started getting involved in the Beloit franchise. So we're, I'm very excited about this. I think it just fits into where Beloit's been going as a community, you know, I write, write books on this, you know, I write a book called Building a Vibrant Community. And I think, you know, the 
a vibrant community is one that keeps its talent home. And I think this was this whole way we're going here is how do you create a place where you keep your pe young people, particularly home or get young people back. So we're really excited. I think the name fits perfectly what the whole message of what we've been trying to do at Beloit and not what we've been doing. We're just part of that big Beloit organize, you know, community that's been doing a lot of great things for the last 10 years. Right. I think it's fair to say that there might not be a snappers or a sky carp or any affiliated Beloit baseball right now, if this new ballpark ABC supply stadium hadn't come about making that transition from Pullman field. And it was unorthodox. I'd say to open up the new stadium on August 3rd, that was about two thirds of the way through this 2021 regular season for people that weren't following the process uh, super closely uh, outside of Beloit. Can you just take us through the, the factors that led to opening up the ballpark when you did and, you know, how, how that turned out? I think we we're, we we're anxious to open it during the season. We know we couldn't open it at the beginning of the season. I mean, the fact that this stadium was built in 14 months by CCI is really incredible because, you know, it's all brick. So it wasn't an easy thing to build. It was a more difficult. The craftsman was not easy. Supply chain issues. The fact that it got built before the season ended was great. We wanted to move in because we thought that gives us a 24 games to get used to the stadium, 24 games to learn how concession lines work, where people sort of gravitate to. Because I know when we opened up Blue Wahoo Stadium, you know, we wish we would have had 24 games to get ready for the the season. So I think this was a nice trial run to pilot what worked well and what improvements we needed to make. From what I can tell, average home attendance essentially quadrupled from the games earlier in the year at Pullman to the games at ABC Supply. And in particular, that opening day, full sellout up to capacity at 3,500. Did, did yeah. all that meet your expectations in terms of people being able to go to the games and their general game day experience that they got in the newer facility? Well, I, I, think, I think it was nice. I think we want to do better. You know, I think we want to make sure now that we've got a whole year to sell groups, you know, we couldn't sell groups and, you know, groups is a huge part of any type of, of stadium experience, all new staff. So I'm really looking forward to coming into this year. And what I, I tell people, you know, can, can you imagine we're discussing a name and if you love baseball and you wanted baseball in Beloit, God, this is, this is just fringe benefit. I mean, the reality is three years ago, Eli, if you and I were betting people, we would have been in Vegas taking all the odds in the world that Beloit would not have a baseball team. And that was that's when there were going to be 160 teams and Beloit was on the not going to have a team. And then all of a sudden you go into the 120 teams. Once again, um, you know, Beloit was, I think, on the list of the second most likely team not to make the 120. So the fact that this can and with no public money, you know, Right now, when you're reading about all the new stadiums are being built or renovated, it's usually with public money to, to have a community set up and privately fund a stadium was really quite remarkable and quite great for the taxpayers. So the fact that we're talking about a name, like you said, is really the fringe benefit, because who even thought we were Beloit was even going to have a team three years ago? Right. We're talking with Quint Studer here about the newly rebranded Beloit Skycarp this isn't your first rodeo necessarily. This is much different, I'd say, than the process in Pensacola. But when you were bringing affiliated baseball down to Pensacola, this was about a decade ago. Along with that came a new name in the Blue Wahoos, changing from what they had 
previously. Did, did anything about that process in Pensacola go into this process? Were there any best practices that translated from that situation to Beloit in terms of determining what you felt was the right name for the team? I think, I think with Beloit, um, we knew a little bit more. So I think we were a little bit understanding of um, the process. Um, I think it was important, which we did it. What we learned what worked in Pensacola was to utilize the community. So, you know, when I first got involved with the team, one of the first questions I got was what's gonna happen to Snappy? It was pretty interesting. It seemed to be more worried about the mascot than the name. It wasn't snappers as much as Snappy. And so I think on my first radio interview, I said, if you know what we do in Pensacola, I have no problem with Snappy sticking around. I mean, my God, he needs a partner. You know, he needs another person to hang out with. And especially with COVID, people like work-life balance and Snappy might want a day off periodically and hang out with the other turtles on the Rock River where the stadium is right next to. So I, I think we looked at that. And I, I think we really looked at the blight market. It's a small market. And, you know, Rishi and I, my wife, take no money out of a team. We don't pay ourselves. Any all profits in Pensacola have gone right back into things like early brain development, building a children's hospital. Now, Beloit, you know, all profits, if there are any, will go right back into the community. So you want to make it sustainable. And when we looked at the merchandise issue, which is a huge issue for Beloit, because, you know, you have so many fans you can draw because you've got a small market. Your sponsorship is more local. So what you want to make is, do you have, how's your merchandise sales? And they weren't ever very good in Beloit. I think the best year was 20 years ago. I think when Cecil or when um, Prince Fielder was playing was the last time they had good sales. So we looked at it and then we got the names from the community and they voted. And I, I could have lived with all, any of the five names I was fine with. I, I will say, I think Sky Carp is my favorite because I think it symbolizes everything we want to do in Beloit, which, you know, Sky Carp is a goose. And, you know, I teach leadership and I use geese as an example of leadership. They fly in a certain formation. They have great teamwork. They honk to encourage their other geese to stay in the formation. The lead geese will trade off when he gets tired. And when a goose goes down, two other geese go down with them until either they recover or they pass away. So geese have always been a cool animal in, in my mind about leadership and teamwork. And then when I asked, what, what, what's a sky carp? And they said, it's a goose. I was, okay, then why is it called a sky carp? Because I didn't know. And they said, it's a goose that doesn't migrate. And if you've heard any of my talks on cities, I talk about one of the things that small and mid-market cities must do is reverse migration. You can't lose talent because it all comes down to talent. So I said, isn't this cool? a goose that doesn't migrate. And that's what this whole message is about. Beloit is a great community and it's getting better every day. So it's a place that young people don't wanna leave, people wanna come back to, and people wanna stay. So I think the fact that the sky carp is a goose that doesn't migrate just fits perfectly into what the message we're trying to make with the team. And what we've also learned is you wanna create the type of name where people say, what is that? So, you know, I. First time I heard sod poodles, what's a sod poodle? And I said, that's a prairie dog. Well, that's sort of cool, you know? So we're really excited that the name symbolizes all the good parts about what we're trying to accomplish in Beloit. When I say we, it's not baseball, it's the entire community pulling together to continue to build a vibrant community.
And you have been refreshingly blunt, I would say, about the importance of having those merchandise sales. And for whatever reason, if, if Snappers had, after a, a full generation of being the same, if it had lost its luster for whatever reason, or just failed to capture the imagination of out-of-market fans, uh, that that was one of the priorities in, in making a change like this. Uh, but I'm fascinated by what you also mentioned there, how at first at first glance, people don't know what a sky carp is. I've lived most of my life in areas with geese in them and uh, on the East Coast. And here on the East Coast, I could tell you that, that that slang is not part of our vernacular. So we would have the same questions on like hearing the that name in the first place and trying to make sense of it. it you think that's actually a positive in generating sales that that have, having a name that needs to be investigated or looked into further, you think that is going to do more to capture the imagination of out-of-market fans than a more direct name would? I think for out-of-market fans, I'm not sure it resonates that much as much as when people ask about Beloit. Here's an example. Um, in Pensacola, my wife and I are very involved in early brain development, which we are also now involved in that in Beloit. 85% of the brains developed by age three. So how do we get kids' brains developed, and we do a lot in early brain development. So we had our fundraiser here about a month ago called Light Up Learning, and we do an auction. And one of the auction items we auctioned off was a trip to Beloit, well, airfare to Beloit for two people, stay in the Hotel Goodwin, downtown Beloit, eat at the Velvet Buffalo in downtown Beloit, and go to a, a Beloit baseball game. And it sold for $4,000. So I think that's sort of cool. And then what you want to do is create when people do ask what a sky carp is, you can explain it. But then I think the real question is, how cool is the brand? You know, for out of town people, and maybe I'm just this shallow, I want to, when I look at buying something, I want to wear something that's sort of cool, something that people ask about. And I, I think when you look at the, the logo and you look at how they put geese into sky carp, or you put the bee in Beloit and you look at the goose and you look at the, I showed a, person in Pensacola, this orange scarf, which is, you know, we call it blight hunter, hunter orange. And um, right away, she says, I want one of those scarves. Or you have the aviator glasses, because the second female aviator in the, in the world was from Beloit, Wisconsin. Or you look at the wrench and the goose, you know, Beloit's an ironworks type town. It was built on manufacturing. So I think the more you peel this onion, for some people, they'll just love the merchandise because they like the look. But the more you peel the onion, the cooler the story gets. And from what I've been made aware of, there were a whole lot of revisions to this particular logo to get it exactly right. I mean, you did have time on your side, probably more, more time than is typical in this situation between you know reaching the name and actually unveiling it publicly. I'm curious, when how do you know when you created the the right version? When did it feel right? What was, what is the, between either yourself and whatever other parts of your circle you trust, how do you reach that decision that, that this design was final? How does it really, how do you feel certain about that, knowing how big a decision it is? I think you show it to users, potential users. So you show it to who buys merchandise. You show it to women because we want, you know, we're a big fan of women and women come to the gift merchandise store and what they wear. Some of our bigger purchases of merchandise, of Blue Wahoo merchandise are, are females. So you look at females, you look at, um, well, will young people think it's sort of neat, you know, 
we know I travel for a living. And if you look at baseball caps in airports, I will tell you the number one baseball cap in an airport is a Boston Red Sox B. Now, is everybody a huge Boston Red Sox fan in the entire world? Maybe, or maybe they just love the looks of that B. Or, and so we really wanted to make sure that we had a one that just captures the imagination. I know for me, when I saw the B with the goose head on top, I'm so excited to wear the hat. I can hardly, you know, I have not worn one yet. So I'm so excited to do that. I just think when people see the look and how the goose is implemented into it, it's just a really, really neat look, neat colors. It's just real clean. And I, I think it's gonna be real attractive. So you look at users, you test it out with the market and, and that's really what you do. You, it's not two or three guys in a room. You go to who's gonna be buying these things and you show them different looks and see what they gravitate to. And the point that you brought up about the Boston Red Sox B, as somebody that has a lot of family in New York, I can assure you that not everybody loves it. And <laughs> to just to, to justify what you were getting at there, I think you can't really have an extended conversation about this year, 2021, without talking about COVID. This being the, after a cancellation in 2020, running what was relatively close to a full length season in the midst of a pandemic. And as somebody like yourself, I feel like you were the person, perfect person to bring this up with because of how involved you are in healthcare and all that. Uh, I didn't, for people like myself who didn't get an opportunity to visit Beloit or Pensacola in this particular unusual season, but it was open to most fans uh, during the course of the year. Can you describe what it is that your teams had to do to modify the game day experience and try to strike that balance between safety and civil responsibility while still preserving everything that makes minor league baseball fun for the fans? I, I think we were pretty fortunate in the fact that, of course, we're outdoors. And when you're outdoors, that changes the whole format. I think you went from the beginning of the year to the middle of the year. Um, so I, I think for fans, we, we trust the fans to handle it. We didn't really have any issues. I think I, the real credit goes to Major League Baseball. You know, I, I think if Major League Baseball wasn't operating minor league baseball, I'm not sure we could have had this year because they really worked hard. So I think the biggest change for us was um, the fact that the players were so off limits and the coaches and our fans were great. You know, our fans didn't complain. They weren't getting close to the players. Our fans didn't complain. They weren't getting autograph sessions. Our fans didn't complain. There weren't any camps. Their fans were great. And I think the real change for us was you could only have, you know, identify one person from your team. So, so for example, I don't bug the players. I'm not hanging out in the locker room, but I usually know the players somewhat. This year, I, I never went into the locker room um, in, in Pensacola the entire year. So usually at least you know the players. I really don't know any of the players. Really didn't know the coach all that well. We, we did a dinner for him, but, but that's sort of the manager. In Beloit, I went once just to introduce myself to the players and tell them we want to create a great place for them to, to play and the trainers and that. So I think the biggest change was you really couldn't do the interaction, which even led to making sure you could solve issues. So making sure the nutrition was right. Normally your chef's in the, in the locker room making sure it's right. So I think the fact that there was such a firewall between the players and coaches and the whole team and the fans, our cameramen had to 
you know, always wear masks and things like that. But I think great credit to Major League Baseball because, you know, they don't make any money from minor league baseball. We don't send them a check per se. And so they could have easily said, you know, this is too much work. We're just going to keep our players in spring training and not do this. The fact that they work so hard to provide minor league baseball with the season was really incredible. The fact that they let AAA even go longer than normal, the fact that they did sort of playoffs, that it, it, I just give all the credit to Major League Baseball for getting us through this year. There are a couple of questions as we wind this down on the players themselves. One being uh, last month, a multiple reports that pretty circle circulated very widely about a decision that seems baseball has reached in terms of providing housing for minor league players, which had not been done uh, in recent memory, whether that's providing a stipend for them or actual physical housing for them. That seems to be the plan heading into next year. And that would include both Beloit and Pensacola, just your reaction to that, because um, I imagine that's something that you've thought about before, even though it's, it really isn't the responsibility of the minor league teams themselves. Um, the fact that we've reached this point where major league baseball itself seems to be stepping up in this regard where they haven't done it before. Well, Chapter, you know, Chapter Growth, the head of minor league for the Marlins has been nothing but great to work with this, this whole time. And yeah, we, the challenge, and I, I was interviewed by ESPN on this whole topic and they, they didn't run much of what I said, but the reality is, COVID had a huge impact on minor league baseball housing. So for example, I know Belo I know Pensacola better than Beloit because I've you know, been in Pensacola. About half our players stay in host families, particularly the Latin players. They tend to stay in host families. These are host families that have had Latin players. They're bilingual. The food is made for them. In fact, I, I remember when some of the Latin players get called up to the major leagues, the first person they call after their own mom is their host family mom to talk about. So I, I think when you look at taking 50% of the players out of host families, that, dub, that, that created the challenge. I think if we still had host families, we, we could have made it through. So that means some people now, there's limited supply of housing. And it depends, I think it also depends on the city. Eli, if you look at Pensacola, Pensacola's whole market is hot, not, and not in the winter. We, we don't get a lot of the snowbirds like maybe Miami does. Ours is the summer. All these people from Tennessee and Georgia, and they jam into the beautiful white beaches in Pensacola. So our tourist season runs from April till the end of August. So nobody's going to sit here and sign a short-term lease for a minor league ball player when you look at what you can get from the tourists. So ours has always been a bit of a bigger challenge, and but we've been able to pull it off because we had host families. So actually, as, as you know, it's been publicized. We're in the process of purchasing property anyway. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's three groups' responsibilities, not just major league baseball. I think it's the minor league baseball's responsibility to do everything they can to find what's available housing. What is there? Because they live there. They know who's there. They know the hotels. Uh, the Marlins aren't going to know that from Jupiter, what's available in Pensacola. So I think I have a responsibility in here and in Beloit to know what's available and talk to that. Number two, I think the community has a responsibility. I mean, look at, look at the Beloit name change. 
if you look at that, Beloit will probably get more media coverage from the name change than they will probably anything else in the last four or five years. Pensacola is the same thing. You know, you got Bubba Watson who owns the Blue Wahoos with me coming out with a new book called Ups and Downs, and he's been on the Today Show. He's been everywhere. And of course, where does he do his interviews? From Blue Wahoo Stadium. So, so the reality is the city needs to help. You know, the, the chamber, the city, how can we help make sure there's, there's supply because it's a supply issue. Then Major League Baseball can come in and, and Major League Baseball can come in with assurances of some, whether it's however they do it, the right funding mechanisms. And I think the funding mechanisms are gonna have to be dependent on the community and the city. You know, Pensacola is more expensive than, than Beloit. That's just the nature of the beast. And, and so I think we'll have more challenges in Pensacola if we don't have host families than we will in, in Beloit. However, Diane Hendricks, as you know, is a phenomenal lady in Beloit. She's already talked last year about making sure these players have great places to live. And so I think in both communities, we're committed to work with Jeff and the rest of the Marlins organization because it just fits. You know, why did Major League Baseball take really over minor league baseball? Well, they wanted to assure there was standardization of bus travel. They wanted to make sure that nutrition was right in the locker rooms. They wanted to make sure the turf was good, the lights were bright, and the locker rooms had enough space to make, you know, to nutrition not in the locker room. We hadn't done a lot of these moves before the new facility requirements. So it wouldn't make sense then to make sure the living arrangements outside the ballpark have that same standardization as hotels and so on. So we've been really supportive of this whole process. And I think um, as have the Marlins been. So we were working on this even before this came about. Right. And I can't wait till details are official on that. And uh, I just know from speaking to players that for many of them, this would really reduce the stress that uh, an extra consideration that they had is some anxiety that they had about securing housing, affording housing. That, uh, well, that depends on the player too. You know, some of them want their girlfriends with them. Some of them want wives with them. Some of them want kids with them. Some of them want their dogs with them. So, you know, it, it really isn't just a one size fits all situation and, and the travel where, where we're looking, all the property we're looking at for the players is within walking distance of the stadium. Because again, that reduces the need for travel and cars and things like that. So yeah, I think it's a collaborative thing, but I don't think it's just major leagues responsibility. I think if the minor league team plays a part, you know, the community gets tremendous publicity from having a minor league baseball team. It's publicity and name recognition they would not get without the major league brand. So I, I think also communities have a responsibility. You know, our community gives millions of dollars to advertise to get tourists down here. Well, I think, you know, I think even cities can also help in this issue. On a lighter note, I imagine you had an opportunity to attend a fair share of games in Pensacola and, and some in Beloit and perhaps even some time to watch them uh, when you weren't there in person. Uh, not asking you to be a professional player evaluator or a scout, but are there any particular Marlins players that you saw with, with either team that made a strong impression on you this season that just as a baseball fan, you enjoyed well, watching a lot? Me, when, I know he had Tommy John surgery, but when Jake Elder was at his name? Was Jake it, Eater, yes. Yeah, he was phenomenal. He was extremely dominant when he was on. So I was really impressed, impressed with him. Um, Matt Meyer is a tough competitor. 
And so, of course, you, you sometimes look at them out there and you don't realize until you look at the stat sheet what a good pitching he he had. So I think those two were really impressive. The um, Burdick, is that his name? Peyton Burdick, yeah. He's another yeah. one. You know, he's a, he's a gamer on one of these guys that, you know, again, the, the you know, the to get to the major leagues, it collapses so tight, so tight. Um, JJ, you know, had a rough year this year, but certainly that's what minor league baseball is all about. We had, I compare here a lot to Jesse Winkler. We, we had Jesse Winkler here and Jesse Winkler hit about 180 for half a year here and then got hurt his wrist. And, and came back, we, we always joke because the wind always comes in from right field here that Jesse Winkler learned how to hit to left field in Pensacola, Florida, because it's really hard to hit something out here in right field. I think in Beloit, the fellow who just uh, grabbed you, is, I think, is, is a pitcher named Perez. Yep, at the very end of the season. Yeah, I mean, he was just lights out and, and the love of the game that he showed. So, you know, there, there were good ball players, like I think Mittner or some, I, I don't know some of the names, but cause I really, ironically, I couldn't even tell you our record. People look at me, my focus is on our fan experience and our employees happy and our fans happy. That's what I pay attention to. I can tell you what our net promoter score was. I can tell you what our employee engagement scores are much more than I can tell you about players. Um, I just don't, I just pay all my attention to, to the fans because that's where I win or lose. I win or lose off the field. And, and we've done studies. Our attendance in Pensacola is not dependent on whether the team's winning or losing whatsoever. It has nothing to do with it. And I think that's the beauty of minor league baseball. I bet you major league baseball wishes they had that minor league baseball brand where people came to the game, no matter how the team performed on the field, where major league baseball has almost got where, you know, you, your attendance can vary based on how the team's winning or losing. We have not had that in, in minor league baseball. We draw pretty much the same, whether they win or lose. We actually had the University of Chicago Economics Department study our stuff because I know John List there. And um, we're pretty much draw the same, whether you win, lose. And I, it's what I like about minor league baseball. It's about creating that family experience. The Marlins do wish that they envy that atmosphere for sure, because I wanted to finish on this. They, they're coming off a season at the major league level where you're probably aware that they struggled. They lost 95 games, but they are determined this offseason to be one of the most aggressive teams to improve. And, and there are traditionally two ways to utilize your resources, either signing players in free agency or trading some of those highly regarded prospects that, that you mentioned in exchange for proven veterans. Uh, I mean, you just mentioned that how, where your focus is, and it's not necessarily on the field. So, so I guess you, you trust the Marlins either direction that they want to go, or would it in, in your mind, it's not in your money. Would, would you be all right if they uh, put more of their focus in free agency in order to, you know, retain all those talented prospects they've showed this past season? Well, the, the team I look at is in our league. It's called the Braves. And if yeah. you look at the Braves, the Mississippi Braves, it's just amazing. Every year, them and the Montgomery Biscuits, which are Tampa Bay, these are two minor league systems that are in our league. And both of them win. And they, they win through consistency and standardization at the minor league level. And I think no matter what you do, you've got to develop your minor league players, even so they have the trade value you have. But, you know, I, I just, if you look at the Braves, and we've seen all their players come through here, 
Um, they've really figured out how to develop these minor league players and same with Tampa and, and maximize them. And I think with Jeff and Gary Dembo, um, you know, I think they're really committed to standardization and quality at the minor league level. But for, for Jeff, this was his first year really managing the minor league operations and they, they've done some, some great things. And, you know, Bubba last year, Bubba um, spoke to all the captain's camp of a Watson. And so um, that worked out quite well too. So, you know, I don't know, that's up. I think you have to, you know, if you look at teams, the teams that win with free agents get a lot of publicity, but there's a lot of free agents that don't work out. You know, we were a twins affiliation. I was really excited when they signed Josh Donaldson. I'm not sure it's going to prove to be as valuable as they thought. So who knows? That's why baseball is so hard because you're dealing with human beings. These aren't commodities. These aren't products. These are human beings. So you got to get lightning in the bottle sometimes. And I hope the fans come out because, you know, it's always, we got to win, then we'll come out. Well, if you come out, then you give the team more revenue to go out and win. So I would just encourage people to go to a lot of Marlin games. Well, we'll finish it right there for anybody listening to this podcast, uh, wherever you are, could subscribe to Quince and the Busy Leaders podcast. I'm, I'm sure it's available on any of those platforms talking about more substantial things than just baseball. And you can follow Quince on Twitter uh, at Quince underscore Studer. Thank you so much for doing this. Go Carp. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. I really think it's going to fit well. And we've got a great brand. And, you know, for those that love Snappy, he'll still be hanging out. And we talk about Snapper Sundays for those that do it. And this is, we, you know, like I said, I'm in healthcare and yeah, I know names are important, but let's put life into perspective here. You know, let's, let's put life into perspective and let's have some fun. And I always tell people, if you come to see me at the ballpark, I say two things, high fun, high energy. So let's, let's have, let's have some fun and wait till you see the mascot. That's the next big announcement. And that's going to be really fun. And Snappy is so excited about having somebody to hang out with. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that too. Still a few months to, to get that finalized but by the time people are listening to this the big reveal will already be out there and we'll be sure to have full coverage on fish traps so that people can see uh, all the, the alternates not just the uniforms and the hats and the logos and but also the story behind it because you guys really put a lot of effort into that thank you so much quint thank you <laughs>